1: Monday to Friday, 7am to
2: late 30am
0: Good morning everyone and welcome to 3CR Breakfast We're doing things a bit differently today On today's show we're going to be sharing with you some of our favourite voices and guests from this past year So stay tuned for a great show We're going to start this morning's show with a track. This is called Sugarcoat, and it's by Ash Loon.
1: Texted you twice, but there's still no reply. So when you send me that, I'ma hit you with that good night. Needed a sign, but it's hiding right in plain sight. Fell for you hard, but you never were the right type. But I'm the dove now, I'm taking off these handcuffs. Gave you my time, but you took none of mine. So I wrote about your lies and I put it up on Spotify. Ooh, ooh. Since I've gone away, you say you want me back. Ooh, ooh. Six years wasn't.
0: the song sugarcoat by ash loon emma cutting is the founder of the heart gardening project the aim of this community initiative is to create wildlife corridors on public land transforming nature strips and other urban areas into insect-friendly gardens I caught up with Emma earlier this year at one of the bee gardens in South Melbourne and we spoke about the importance of community gardens, not just for the bees and other critters that depend on these environments, but also to strengthen relationships between people, especially during tough times. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, Emma. Could you please start by introducing yourself a bit more and telling us about your work?
3: Hello, Fong. Good morning. Hello. Um, I am the founder of the Heart Gardening Project and we're based, we're a community initiative uh, and not-for-profit organisation based in South Melbourne. And we bring humans and nature together through street gardening and public plantings.
0: Awesome. And how did the Heart Gardening Project come about?
3: It came about through many years of street gardening and me observing that there was a massive opportunity in these spaces, um, not only for nature, which was kind of the first thing that hit me, but also for the community, uh, which definitely, um, that was one thing just, uh, then also there were a whole lot of personal things around. I had chronic fatigue syndrome for 12 years and i really needed to make up for lost time there. Um, my daughter, um, EJ was born and I really wanted her to, uh, learn about nature in the, and seeing as we're in the middle of the city, I was like, I had to do something there. Um, all those things happened at the beginning. And then, because then all these amazingly huge world events happened. We had the bushfires had pandemic we've had climate crisis just amp up and all of those personal things plus these global things have just meant that we are there is such an opportunity here for us to use these spaces these nature strips and these barren public spaces and turn them into beautiful gardens for nature and while we're doing that it's actually helping us <laughs> because we are meant to be in nature, and it does actually help us. There's the blue-banded bee. There it is right there.
0: Can you see it? Can you describe to our listeners what we're seeing?
3: Okay, so we're at the perennial basil in our laneway, and we've got a beautiful blue-banded bee, which is zooming around. Oh, it's actually going really slowly today because it's a cloudy day. (laughs) So we could actually see it. But it is the most beautiful. It's actually sitting. you Oh, you actually able to see it today normally it's just so fast but they are a native bee and they are absolutely gorgeous um, it's taken us six years to get them here um, and uh, you might notice that I'm excited
0: so you mentioned before that we're currently standing in a laneway one of the laneway gardens would you mind describing to our listeners what kind of plants you've got along this laneway
3: here Absolutely. We've got all sorts. This laneway, me and my daughter, who's almost four, uh, we look after this together. Uh, it's, we don't really have any garden in our house. So, um, and along the streets aren't so safe for a, for a tiny little one. Um, so we have whoa, a lot of herbs. We have parsley, oregano, thyme, rosemary, Marjoram, we have everlasting daisies rice uh rice flowers ooh can't remember the latin for those nasturtiums um we have calendula catnip which is one of the thing, one of the plants that the blue banded bees like here bay bay trees we have um woolly bushes brachyscome so native daisies uh, it's very it's varied And that's probably about half of the plants, so I might not keep going. (laughs) Um,
0: You mentioned something before about the fact that you and your daughter don't have a garden and so you use the space just outside your place to plant all these beautiful plants. What would you recommend or suggest or advise to people who are in a similar situation? They They want to plant things, they want to be in nature but they don't actually have the space? Because I imagine a lot of people do live in apartments and things like that.
3: It's it's um, definitely something you hear a lot of in this area, and I'm sure in many other areas um, this is the case. So this is where street gardening becomes so important. Um, so as I would say if you've got some space out the front of your house, then... Have a look at what you can do there because mm. there is so much you can do. Um, check out your council nature strip guidelines. Most now will let you do something. It's just how they'll let you do it. And then just get going with it. I mean, there's a lot of information on street gardening on on our website, the theheartgardeningproject.org.au. And then, if you're really keen, I mean, I've, I've written a book, so you can always get that. <laughs> but I, and I wrote that book because um, one of the uh, our main focus at the moment is the Melbourne Pollinator Corridor, and it's I've spent a year designing and and we've started it as well. It's an eight-kilometer pollinator corridor that runs from the Botanic Gardens to Westgate Park, and. It's, we're aiming it's community-led, that, and it's within local government uh, constraints, but not with local government. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're looking at planting 200 Indigenous-focused gardens. Um, that's about 18,000 plants in the next couple of years. And it's it's really exciting. It's based on uh, science. I know you had um, Catherine Berthon on. I've been working with. With Catherine as well as about 20 other specialists on how to do this, um, you know about wildlife corridors, how they work, uh, looking at urban planning, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, it's very exciting. It has a lot of support, and um, that's the. So I wrote a book that is an intro to native bees, like our beautiful blue bended bee, who's still buzzing around. Oh and um and an intro to street gardening which in itself is is its own type of street gardening it's an uh, its own type of gardening it's it's like it's kind of like the wild west of gardening really and there's there's a whole lot of expectations that it's just really nice to know before you head outside your Mm. your own place and it's also an intro to what you can do around gardening for biodiversity in general.
0: Emma, can you tell us more about these bee gardens, uh, the types of bees that are attracted to these gardens and the role of native bees in our ecosystem?
3: So, so far, the Heart Gardening Project has helped to create over 70 street gardens. They're all all aimed to uh, increase biodiversity and we do that through the choice of plants. We help with exotics and natives and indigenous plants and um so they're all mainly in south melbourne at this point i believe there are people um, of definitely um, my book has gone out around australia so i'm thinking i'm yet to find out whether it's actually outside but i think it is um the types of critters that come along um yes of course look we're we're designing for native bees, but when we design for native bees, that means that a whole lot of other critters come along as well. It means we've got the honeybees. It's not that we don't love honeybees. We do. It's just they're, they're what's called generalists, and they'll pretty much they'll feed on most flowers. Native bees can be a bit more picky, and they can, they're, they can be specialists. So, um, so we design for both, and um, so we've got native bees, and we've just, and that's very exciting. And we've, I think, this summer we've seen about five or six different species. Uh, we, Catherine, came out the other day actually, and did the first biodiversity kind of um, survey, which is really exciting. So that's our research underway. When I start on these sites, they are so sad. It makes me very determined to do more when I see the difference, which really, they might go from nothing, like I cannot see anything living, to literally buzzing and wriggling beauties.
0: That sounds amazing. That sounds incredible. Um, I would love for you to talk about the community impact that these gardens have had and, and also just the or have you heard from people in the community about um, how gardening has impacted them?
3: The reaction from the community has been immense. It's actually, there are plenty of challenges, I have to admit, with what we're doing, which is you know, pretty new. But the reaction and the constant, incredible support from the community is what? I, I ride on that wave of massive positive um, feedback from the very, very beginning. Um, you know, there's cards in the mail that people would be handing me cash to do more or to. Um, we did crowdfunding right at the start. This was in the very first lockdown, a while ago now, um, and we did. Uh, we raised five thousand dollars to to build gardens and. It's every day, every day I hear stories about how someone's noticed something in the garden or they've noticed little critters more because of, you know, what I've been doing or um, they've got kids that stop and they have conversations with their families either at home. So it sparks conversations about nature, which oh, it's, that's very powerful stuff. And that's the thing about street gardening is that, it's so powerful it's underestimated as well i think it it is just this gold mine of untapped power mm. and it's it definitely has ups and and downs but there's so many more ups as well as bringing the community together in around the street gardens and when people are passing by as the volunteers that we have working together is so special and they all give of course their time and energy and positivity to create some really amazing gardens. We don't use chemicals, we don't use big machinery so it's it can be slow going, they're really difficult sites so the volunteers are Absolutely amazing. And we're really going to be upping that over the next year uh, so we can, yeah, organise volunteers uh, better so we can do more gardens. Amazing. I mean, at 3CR, we definitely
0: know what it means to be a volunteer and we love we love that support from the community and, and people who want to get out there and help and give their time and energy to projects that they're really passionate about. So, yeah, that sounds incredible.
3: There are so many people that want to help. That's what I've actually um, been blown away by as well. I get emails all the time by people wanting to help. What can we do? This sounds really good. So I I know we're on to something. So now it's, it's time to really, really make it grow.
0: And that was Emma Cutting from the Heart Gardening Project. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Here's another song for you. This is by Nairi, and it's called Closer. In the sun. Nairi, with her song, Closer.
3: You're listening to Summer Programming on 3CR. The regular breakfast team is taking a break, so we're bringing you highlights from 3CR's current affairs programs.
1: The East Coast...
0: Anna Langford is Campaign Coordinator at Friends of the Earth's Act on Climate Collective. She joined us this year to talk about the report Climate Impacts at Work, which was published by RMIT University in collaboration with Friends of the Earth and six Victorian unions. This report presents a worker-centric analysis of climate change impacts and describes how the climate crisis is already impacting Victorian workers. Can you tell us more about this survey that was conducted and the type of questions that you asked workers?
2: Yeah, definitely. So I think a really key part of it in our approach in the first place as to um, what industries and workers we wanted to survey was that we really wanted to um, broaden the scope of workers who are seen to be affected by climate change right now Um, I guess from the traditional, like the focus I think in the past has centred a lot more on outdoor workers like construction workers who are copying, you know, the most obvious impact of climate change now, which is um, much more intense heat. And that is obviously a really uh, crucial one to have focused on because, um, yeah, they are some of the, the workers that have been on the most obvious front lines of climate change uh, but we really wanted to cast the net a lot wider and see, you know, how many other industries and workers can we bring into this conversation so that they're able to see, articulate climate change as a problem that is already affecting them personally at work. So as you can, as listeners will um, see from the unions you just named, we really cast the net to include... Everyone from office workers, transport workers, people in kitchens, health workers, um, who are all experiencing climate change in different kinds of ways on the ground. So the questions were aiming to draw out as many different aspects of that as we could. And that includes everything from all the different kinds of physical impacts, whether that's from a heat wave or an intense storm, all the way through till the mental health effects on workers um, that can be exacerbated by the physical effect.
0: Yeah, and it was interesting that you just noted that, you know, you are you were looking to include, um, you know, a, a wide range of, of workers and, and their experiences um, dealing with the impacts of climate change and looking at the report, you know, reading um, testimonies from um people working in kitchens, like you said, they also suffer from uh, increased heaps. um not just the people who are working outside or or people who are having to work during, you know, bushfire season and not receiving adequate PPE to, um, to work through those um, conditions. Uh, I think it, it, yeah, for a lot of people, I think we don't necessarily think about um, how intense and how widespread uh, this issue is for workers.
2: Mm, Yeah, exactly. I think for quite a lot of people, climate change is still framed as an externalised problem, like a problem that's happening to someone else somewhere else or up in, you know, the, uh, the Arctic or like to... Just yeah, people in like more extreme situations than you right now, and of course the the impacts are unevenly distributed across the world, um, which um, collides with differences in socioeconomic economic um, situations um, and yeah, I think like through wanting to include all these different workers in the survey, we really just wanted to show um how holistic it is already for people on the ground right here in Victoria um and therefore how holistic um and worker centered the response to climate impacts that are going to mm. continue to intensify needs to be um because you know when when we when we're looking at the results we're just we just kept seeing all the ways that each you know what happened in one industry what affected one group of workers would then bounce off and affect another group. For example, with transport, uh, one thing we asked all workers about in the survey was if their transport to and from work had been disrupted because of climate impacts. And about a third of people across the whole spectrum of industries reported that they had experienced um, problems with transport to and from work, whether that's due to extreme heat or... Um, a s- storm or flooding or that kind of thing. So obviously that, you know, affects the transport workers managing the public transport system who have to deal with that extra stress. But then it also flows on to workers in all those other industries, um, like, for example, health workers who might not be able to get to the clients that they're doing in-home visits for.
0: Mm. Yeah, and and, and to... Um it extends beyond just, you know, what workers have to deal with at work, but it also affects um, their lives outside of work in terms of, you know, their housing um, conditions. Like if a lot of these mm. part-time casual workers are, um, are living in rental housing and and with the climate crisis, they're not provided with adequate um, cooling or heating, um, and so that affects them. You know, not just at work, but in their living conditions as well. Or, you know, just reading the report and and seeing that a lot of people are now working from home uh, since COVID. Um, but again, if if they're not adequately supplied with um, with heating or cooling, um, the more that we experience extreme weather, you know, the harder it is for them to to carry out their work. So, it yeah, it it's it's. Not just a, I mean, it's more than just a work issue. Like you said, it's it mm. needs to be looked at in a holistic sense and see that it affects, you know, people's um, living conditions as well.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that is really what we mean when we say that it's a worker-centric study, and that the response to intensifying climate impacts should be worker-centric. It doesn't actually mean just confined to your workplace, but it means. Taking a look at what your what stresses you're being put under as a worker in your job, how does that flow on to your your home life and your your family and community through that, and even it can also be in the reverse, like if your work situation is relatively comfortable, if your home situation, for example, a really uncomfortable rental property. Uh, is constantly affecting things like your sleep cycle and just how yeah, how well you're able to function at home during extreme weather, then that flows on to affect how well you're able to function in the workplace. Mm. Um, one thing about extreme heat that we really saw pop up in, as real-life examples in the survey was that when there's a heat is something that, accumulates in your body over days so like you know when there's a heat wave that lasts a couple of days you're going to be feeling the effects of the same temperature a lot more intensely on say the fifth day than the first day um, even if the actual temperature is not necessarily higher because if you if you go home and you're not able to adequately cool down at night then you yeah, you wake up and start the next day in a much more depleted state that won't actually get better until you're able to fully cool down for an extended period of time.
0: Wow. So, yeah, it's, it it seems as though the, the physical impacts on your body are uh, quite extreme and, and I imagine what that does to your mental health as well mm. um, wouldn't, yeah, isn't great at all. Um, I, I wanted to touch briefly on the workers' perceptions of of climate change, um, what kind of responses did you get from workers in terms of how they viewed um, the climate crisis and what's being done about it or what's not being done about it?
2: Yeah, um, well, I think, like, obviously, like, the the study being called Climate Impacts at Work will have in some way skewed the results to um, a lot of people, taking the survey who are already interested or aware of climate change in some way or other. Um, but also, like, I mean, we wanted to... We were aware that it being called climate impacts at work might even um, exclude, in a way, some people that have already suffered some of the most intense impacts of climate change, like, for example, um, you know, people who are still traumatised from... um bushfires and just might not be able to share their experiences yet in that way. Um, But across the board, we just did see a really strong awareness of the ways that climate change is already playing out in people's lives and their communities. Um, And I think that came through really strongly in the, the mental health findings. So across the whole spectrum of workers that took the survey, 48% of the whole sample reported that they felt their mental health um, had already been affected by climate impacts. And that wasn't just the kind of, you know, you know about climate change as a concept, therefore you're you're stressed and anxious about it. It was really like being linked to the -the on-the-ground experiences people were having, whether that was the smoke
0: in the 2019-20 fires um, or the more recent floods? Yeah, um, it's, it's. I mean, I think for, the, I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone, but it seems like the majority of people, and especially those taking that um, survey, know already what, um, how the climate is negatively impacting um everyone especially workers um in a variety of situations um is there anything that uh i guess is are there any support services or if there are any workers who are um who are wanting to speak to someone about about how the climate is impacting them at work is there anyone that they can talk to
2: um yeah I, so i think there's like There's a few different um, things coming up, like the the union movement is really, you know, jumping on the front foot with responding um, to the climate crisis as um, a worker issue and a class issue. Um, And I think there's lots of really good work going on there that union members um, and workers can track and be involved with. I think an awesome example for anyone who is, a member of um, the United Workers' Union, which represents, I think, like 40 or 50 different industries, is that they have um, a member climate action group that they've been running for the last year and a half or so. And it's a place for um, members to come along to regular meetings and share their experiences of how they're um, being affected by climate impacts and also like talk about what kind of responses they want to see from employers and the union and um, from governments. And they've like they've been doing that kind of, you know, just story sharing and conceptual work, but they're also doing awesome on-the-ground on outreach work to their members whenever there's a climate disaster. Um, so, for example, when the bushfires and floods have happened, they've been doing, like, mass reach out. To members in affected areas to check in on them and offer them support through um, relief payments if people have lost income or um, or their homes so I think like that's a really innovative thing that's come up that I'd love to see more unions um, create a similar version of and that member climate action group is actually available for any member of any union to join, even if it's not United Workers' Unions at the moment, because they're really keen to, um, yeah, bring more people in on it.
0: That was Anna Langford speaking to us about their report on how the climate crisis is impacting Victorian workers. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast.
4: You're listening to summer programming on 3CR. Well, she got her
1: daddy's car and she cruised to the hamburger stand. Now, she forgot all about the library, like she told her old man.
0: Now, we're going to play another track for you now. This is "My Island Home," performed by Spinifex Gum.
1: is
0: The song My Island Home by Spinifax
1: Gum.
3: Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean to bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao. And cacao mass in bulk. A zero waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram.
0: Maroa Johnson is a wordy woman and is the First Nations program lead and co-director of Youth Verdict, a group of Queenslanders who are fighting for communities to thrive on a healthy planet. I caught up with Marua on Tuesday breakfast to talk about Youth Verdict's win against Waratah Coal, the massive Clive Palmer-owned Galilee Basin coal project. A Queensland court said that the coal project should not go ahead because of its contribution to climate change, its environmental impacts, and because it would erode human rights. This was the first time that human rights arguments were used in a climate change case in Australia. Welcome to 3CR Marawa. Firstly, can you tell us about Youth Verdict and how you got involved in this organisation?
5: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on the program. Really excited to be here. I uh, love to talk about a win against Clive Palmer any day of the week. So Youth Verdict, we're essentially a Queensland based group of young people who care about, um, climate, uh, the climate, I guess, taking action on climate change, but, um, really center us, like try to position ourselves, uh, more so to uh, align with, I guess, First Nations land justice and sovereignty agendas. Um, and we see ourselves as sort of being, I guess, um, in, uh, I guess in this intersection of, um, climate action, but like pushing for First Nations to be really leading on that and doing that through supporting and investing in or getting, you know, the broader public to support and invest in um, First Nations cultures and protecting those. Um, being Queensland-based, we have two Indigenous peoples up here, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So the vastness of First Nations peoples in Queensland is really rich. Um, and then for the last three years, obviously, we've been um, fighting Clive Palmer in court as well. And we see ourselves as very much sort of like, I guess, advocating in a way for young people to take litigation um and to i guess have that be you know a legitimate sort of um pathway that young people can access and making um a- making access to um the legal system easier as well is some of the work that we want to do but yeah really um not saying that litigation is everything but i think very much so coming out of queensland understanding that there's a big history of first nations led litigation here that is um, I guess, um, had those ripple effects across the country, you know, with a state of Mabo and Kawada and Yana versus the Commonwealth and Akiba versus the Commonwealth, and of course, the Wick people versus Queensland. Um, so all of these, um, this, I guess, history of black litigation, and we really want to pay homage to that. And I guess um, support other young people and young First Nations people who want to go down the litigation pathway of, I guess, um, standing up and resisting uh, against the fossil fuel industry in Queensland. So um, I'm sure everyone has read
0: a bit about the case against Waratau coal mine, but can you tell us more about the project and the disastrous environmental impacts that it would have on country?
5: Yeah, thank you very much. So the Galilee Basin has first um, you know, there's been over seven years, eight years, uh traditional owner resistance by the Wangana Jagalingu people, um, to the opening up of the Galilee Basin against um Adani now Bravas's Car- Carmichael mine. Um, but also Waratah has been on the cards for a long time in terms of um, yeah. Opening up the Galilee, which is one of the largest, um, up until Adani, one of the largest untapped coal reserves in the world. Um, where Waratah is proposed to be, which is about 30 kilometres outside of Alpha in central Queensland, um, on the Jagalingu side of Wangana Jagalingu country. Um, yeah, so, um, where, pardon me, where Waratah is proposed to be, I guess, um, If Waratah were to go ahead, it would, I guess, um, create the infrastructure and the ability for a lot of other coal mines in the bottom left end of the Galilee Basin to open up. So, again, with Adani opening up the top end of the Galilee Basin, we're really concerned about the bottom end opening up, but also there are like 30 new coal projects proposed at the moment throughout the Galilee and the Bowen Basins more to the east um towards like rockhampton more um and so uh yeah that's just a little bit about the the mine itself proposed many years ago by club palmer we've been um objecting as youth verdict for three years now since 2020 um but really shifted in 20 uh pardon me shifted at the end of 2020 to have the cultural rights focus of the cultural rights of First Nations people at the forefront of Youth Verdict's case. So um, a little bit more about the case, like the details, I guess. We're represented by the Environmental Defender's Office in Queensland. We're co-objectors with the Bimbal Alliance. So the Bimbal Box Nature Reserve is actually um, out uh, where the mine site is proposed in central Queensland on Jagalingu country. Um, and so we're co-objectors with Bimbal uh, the Bimber Blocks Alliance, also known as, uh, referred to as TBA, And um, <clears throat> the focus for Bimble Blocks really is about the direct impacts that the mine would have um, on country, but um, definitely to the nature reserve as well. And then Youth Verdict's approach has always been more the focus on the indirect impacts, so the climate impacts of building a new coal mine, and, um, and essentially through the climate impacts and, um, I guess our theory of change at YV being about supporting First Nations land justice, um, to have First Nations people lead action on climate change. We really shifted at the end of 2020 to have the focus on cultural rights. Um, and since then really make, um, I guess the youth verdict side of the case about um, climate impacts to human rights and cultural rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, and I guess the original sort of theme was really about, um, I guess, the case where it, it fit into a lot of, um, I guess, the trend at the moment with a lot of youth cases, you know, going up against um, billionaires or governments and suing them or, you know, taking legal action and litigation around climate uh, climate change or climate inaction by those, um, governments or whoever it be. Uh, and that was, I think, the original intention of YV as well, very much so, like youth is still in our name. But I think we've come a long way, especially in the last two years with the shift to focus on Um, you know, the worst affected by climate change and really giving the platform to the experience of climate and the negative impacts of climate change that are already happening in First Nations communities and put understanding that as young people, if we really want to change this country and create the shift necessary, you know, to save First Nations communities in Queensland and in the top of Australia, but, um, also, you know, to ensure a safe future and climate for us all, then we really need to be irregardless of age, supporting First Nations people who are doing uh, I guess their part in the legacy of caring for country.
0: Can you talk more about the the case and and the kind of evidence that was provided um, to the court? as well as some of the witnesses who were able to to talk about the impacts of this mine?
5: Yeah, great. Thank you. So uh, a little bit about um, the evidence provided to the court and the witnesses. So um, we have... Um, I guess the shift for YB in terms of like, if we're going to do climate justice and not just climate action, then we need to be giving First Nations people with experience of climate change that platform. So we made a decision, um, around September 2020 to really, um, to have exclusively First Nations witnesses. Um, and, um, really to, to switch, I guess, from, You know, I, we had multiple rights that we were arguing for, um, and I guess challenging Clive Palmer's mining lease and environmental, um, authority applications on, on multiple grounds. Um, but really for us, like, um, it became clear that if we put cultural rights at the top and, um, you know, have had First Nations witnesses, then, First Nations witnesses through their cultural rights are able to argue every single one of the other human rights that we are also arguing for. Um, and good ways, that's the way that it should be as well because it's not like certain human rights apply to like the non-Indigenous population and then only the cultural rights apply to First Nations people. Um, what we said was, okay, we need to put cultural rights on the top and have First Nations witnesses because every aspect of their lives They live through culture, and um, the way their lives are going, that are already being interrupted by climate change, I think shows um, the interruption to culture, and also gives evidence to you know the right to life and all of the other rights that rights of a child. So to be able to inherit their culture as well. Um, can be argued all through our First Nations witnesses. So we made that shift. Um, all of our witnesses are at the moment from uh, are from far, far North Queensland. So we've got a young man from Yirinji um, Nation around Gimoy Cairns and then also an uncle from um, Hopevale, Bog and Waterman, and then we've also got um, a family from the Torres Strait, so father and daughter from Arab Dunley Island and then Mama um, Aka Florence from Paruma Coconut Island, which is also, it's one of the low lying central, um, one of the low lying central islands. It's also a low lying atoll. Um, and um, Aka Florence's sister was also one of the Torres Strait Eight members in the UN uh, Human Rights uh, Committee complaint. So, um really excited to have Arca Florence as a witness as well. And we really wanted to get that, um, you know, sort of broad representation of mainland, um, and also Zenith the Islands in the Torres Strait. And also, um, yeah, uh, I guess just give a, a variety, um, of evidence where we could show that, um, you know, it's, Climate change is happening far and wide across these different Aboriginal nations and different communities, different islands. They're all being affected. So, yeah, so we had evidence of rising sea levels, also evidence of heat waves causing um, the die-offs of um, flying foxes and native animals. Um, and then also, yeah, just the... Um, the seasonal change, you know, whether it's drought. So for the Gutchins, um, they're, um, they practice their traditional gardening, um, on the islands. And if they're unable to, you know, practice traditional gardening because of drought and, you know, the rain's not coming when it's supposed to come, um, then, you know, for a lot of, um, and this is, I guess, the sentiment coming, um, now that, you know, climate change is really being talked about in the Torres Strait as well, is that if they're unable to practice their traditional gardening practices and, you know, um, have agency and autonomy over their own sort of food and diets, then, um, you know, they're going to have to become more reliant on the shops that are on their islands. And, you know, uh, the cost of living is just absolutely outrageous. Some places, like a... tin of like baby milk can be $80, you know, like a small pack of meat could be $120. And so um, this is just, I guess, forcing First Nations people into poverty even more and like uh, doubling down on that because, um, you know, and these are the (laughs) impacts of climate change. This is the reality in communities that um, people aren't able to even, whether it's traditional hunting or fishing and, you know, just food sources that um, they have relied on um, and they can see now they're either not as big as they usually are, they're not coming at the right time, they just can't be dependent upon anymore um, and it's causing, you know, First Nations peoples to have to look outside of the um, yeah, to rely exclusively on, I guess, external food sources and, yeah, just in terms of remoteness and the vastness of Queensland, like, really, um, it's just unacceptable and it's just um, a, a total, you know, injustice for First Nations people, I guess, to be um, pushed out of, um, yeah, being able to live on their own land, essentially, thinking about having to relocate not just because of, you know, the rising sea levels, but also because of um, the cost of living.
0: Yeah, and I think when we are talking about how these issues are caused by, by climate change, it's so easy to forget that there's people or powers responsible for that climate change. So, you know, we're talking about the government's it's really just like another form or ongoing form of colonization. Um, you know, the the refusal to uh, the refusal to shut down gas and coal, the refusal to listen to First Nations communities, um, allow for these problems to spread and to um, intensify. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting to note that it's not just about you know the environmental impacts, like you said, but leads to all these other issues for for First Nations communities.
5: I guess that's kind of, um, you know, how I talk to Mob about climate change is it's, it's about like the future of our cultures and our people. Are we going to be able to identify with our old people and with our places anymore? Because obviously the obvious, you know, um, impacts of climate change with the landscape changing or, you know, unfortunately in the case of the islands in the Torres Strait and throughout the South Pacific, like, Rising sea levels and some of the islands just may not be there, you know, in a, you know, in a few decades or won't be livable anymore. Um, but also, yeah, inaction on climate change is really, it's the colonial process. It's co- co- colonization and, you know, the, I guess all of the other, um, yeah, the isms that created this issue. But then it's also all of those things that are, um, I guess, Um, stalling and in the way and the major blockers of any action being able to be taken. And in the meantime, you know, we have people who are deemed sacrifice and um, like zones and sacrifice people and collateral, and they can just be thrown away. And this is a colonial approach. It's how the colonizers first thought about first nations people when they arrived here with the declaration of terra nullius, the land belonged to nobody. Um, and we've had human rights abuses on this continent since 1788. Um, it's not a new thing, um, but definitely I think with climate change, um, the reality of what First Nations people have been living through for 234 years is going to, you know, might become a lot more evident. And so just really imploring everybody to um, think seriously about our future and take some action on climate change, yeah. My next question then is related to that. For listeners out there
0: who would like to support Youth Verdict, um, what are some things that we can do?
5: Yeah, great. Thank you for the question. So definitely um, on Facebook, um, search for Youth Verdict, Y-O-U-T-H, Verdict, V-E-R-D-I-C-T. And like our Facebook, follow us on there. We're... Um, we we're very quiet on the socials for a while as we were just, you know, trying to run the case. But now that we've won, um, and we really want to get the message out of what we were pushing for in our court case, um, yeah, go to our website, youthverdict.org.au. You could, um, sign up there to support us, but also, um, you could send us an email at team, T-E-A-M, at youthverdict.org.au as well. Um, let us know if you're, um, a young person based in Queensland who wants to be, um, wants to get involved a little bit more. Um, and then we've also got our Instagram as well, Youth Verdict. So hit us up and coming soon to TikTok, but that's another issue. My last question for
0: you, Moa, is, um, where next, um, with this case? What's the next step for Youth Verdict?
5: Yeah, thank you. So, um, I think, it, Waratah have until the 22nd of December to file an appeal. Um, and then we'll find out from there. Um, we're guessing that they will appeal because they've been really quiet in the media. Um, so we'll see what happens. Um, but also ongoing work is, you know, really supporting the communities that our witnesses come from to have conversations about you know maintaining culture um on to the future and sort of like how we want um to inform our climate action in a in a in a way that really um celebrates the richness of first nations cultures and really um you know we're hoping that people will want to um yeah, our own people, but also the broader mainstream community, I guess, invest in the protection of First Nations cultures. And by doing that and investing in, um, you know, First Nations land rights and land justice, um, work, then, um, you know, we like, yeah, traditional owners can stand up against these big projects more. And, um, hopefully, you know, we can really, um, interrupt and hopefully, Start to form some sort of um, powerful <laughs> attacks on the coal and mining, uh, uh, coal industry in Queensland and um, the mining industry throughout the throughout Australia.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Muruwat, to talk about um, the youth verdict uh, win against Waratah Coal Mine, and for talking to us about the importance of culture and the human rights of. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders when we're, when we're talking specifically about um, climate change and its impacts. We'd love to speak to you again, maybe in the new year, to talk about any updates regarding the case. But for now, thanks so much for joining us on 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. If you've just joined us, we just heard from Marua Johnson from Youth Verdict speaking to us about their win against Waratah Coal. Here's another song for you now. This is called Ngura or Rain Song and it's by Kardajala Kiridara. Was the song Mura or Rain Song by Kardajala Kiridara? You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. One of the biggest stories to come out of 2022 was the arrest of Violet Coco, who originally was sentenced to eight months prison for a peaceful climate protest calling for more support for firefighters. New South Wales, Tasmania and Victoria have introduced tough new laws that are punishing and criminalising people for peaceful protests, disregarding and infringing international human rights standards. We spoke to Katia Lalo recently about Violet Coco's case and the anti-protest laws in this state. Katia is a community lawyer and advocate living and working on Woi Run country. She is a long-term member of Melbourne Activist Legal Support. Furthermore, Katia is a good friend of 3CR, doing outdoor broadcasts and is also part of the board. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Katia.
4: Thank you for good morning Tuesday breakfast.
0: Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, can you start by telling our listeners uh, more about the work that you do at Melbourne Activist Legal Support?
4: Yeah, so uh, Melbourne Activist Legal Support has, I think, sort of started or originated around the um, Occupy movement. So there was a group of uh, amazing community lawyers that were doing advocacy for people that were arrested during that process, uh, protest. Um, and then over the years, Melbourne Activist Legal Support has um, done a lot of legal observing. So we go out and we monitor police interaction or um, acts at protests and use of um, force. Uh, we also do a lot of training. So know your rights training, legal observer training for different activist groups and other uh, criminalised communities. Um, so yeah, we've been around a while and I think the work is really integral and important to main, maintaining civil liberties within
0: the protest space. Yeah, definitely, Um, especially with the increased presence of police at at protests, um, it does feel better knowing that there are people looking out for um, protesters. And I think if listeners um, may have already seen uh, Melbourne activist legal support out there, you've got the bright pink um, vests on at yep. protests. So, yeah, that's really important work that you're doing. Um, we've talked about this on 3CR Breakfast already to some extent, but could you talk us through the arrest and sentencing of Violet Coco?
4: Yeah, so Violet was uh, part of an action uh, in April earlier this year where uh, for she was part of a climate action that stopped a lane of traffic on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Um, she was just recently this week sentenced to a 15-month Um, period in jail with a non-parole period of eight months Um, and her sentence her lawyer is currently in the process of appealing her sentence but she actually has been um, she's now in custody she's incarcerated she wasn't granted bail until her next sentencing hearing or till the appeal goes through Um, so she'll be in prison until at least March of next year waiting for her sentencing outcome from the appeal.
0: Yeah and here on the station we've covered extensive extensively the draconian protest laws here in our own state, um, especially when they're used to punish activists standing up for the environment and for communities affected by climate inaction. Can you tell us what Violet Coco sentencing means for the future of protesting in Victoria as well as New South Wales?
4: Yeah, so these laws, and as you've said, you've spoken a lot, and I know 3CR's covered this a lot, um, but, yeah, the laws that are uh, in place in New South Wales and also... Um, in Victoria around forestry and Tasmania and I think there's some laws in Queensland which are similar as well, um, are all very similar in that they um, punish anybody that uh, impedes on economic activity. So in New South Wales with um, Violet Cocos Matter it was closing down a major road. Um, In other areas it's around impacting, say, the economic uh, activity of a port or in Victoria it's around logging, Um, and and specifically the Andrews government introduced that um, under the guise of protecting logging workers, but we know that uh, several unions have come out and opposed the laws and said these laws actually don't do anything to protect logging workers and can harm logging workers if they're trying to take industrial action as well. So um, these laws are really about protecting, I mean, uh, essentially protecting capitalism, so protecting economic activity uh, at the cost of... um, protecting our civil rights to protest. And so it really minimises that civic space that we have the right to take part in, to question our government's actions and to question the actions of large corporations, which therefore has the effect of silencing people, silencing people around really important causes that matter to us.
0: Yeah, like you said, Katya, it really is just another way in which the government is prioritizing, like you said, capitalism and neglecting the environment and all of the communities that are currently affected and will continue to be affected by by the, this negligence um, in the mm. future. And it really does seem that the ways in which we can fight back are just growing smaller and smaller at this rate.
4: Mm. Yes, they are. And I think that, I mean, it's it's really scary because I think that um, particularly in Australia, being a country that experiences a lot of privilege for, and I won't say for everyone, I obviously we know that there are many groups within Australia that experience extreme oppression, but um, especially in a country where we appear to be quite comfortable and I think that um, as these laws... Um, come into place and people don't actually stand up and fight against them, we slowly all lose our ability to speak out. So it's really scary that these things are happening.
0: Yeah. Is there anything that we can do to ensure that our rights to protest uh, are being p- protected?
4: I mean, that's a tricky question because I think um, as, you know, as we've seen in Violet Coco's um, case, there's been a huge uh, outcry from civil liberty groups, um, from legal organisations, even uh, unions and even the UN Special Rapporteur on um, Political Assembly has uh, spoken out against it, saying that these are draconian laws and they punish people's right to to protest. So it's really tricky because as individuals, I think, and as community groups, um you know we can really try to speak out on it, but if governments aren't listening to us, it becomes really difficult. I guess one of the things that people can maybe do is um, you know look at the work, obviously, jump online and look at the work that different civil liberties groups are doing in, in particularly in the laws around forestry and logging in Victoria. Um, Friends of the Earth and other um, organisations, Environmental Justice Australia are talking out a lot about it So getting in contact with them. And I think just figuring out ways, if you're protesting or taking part in civil disobedience, um, to take care of yourself and others. And uh, I guess, you know, getting in touch with MELS, definitely. MELS do... uh, Melbourne Activist Legal Support do a lot of training to support activists around legal observing, um, but also... um, You know, taking part in training that, say, organisations such as Counteract run around safety on direct action. Um, I know Fitzroy Legal Service is updating the activist uh, law handbook at the moment, so when that's updated and comes out, that will be a really important resource. So just really kind of getting across your rights as a protester and also the laws that govern the space uh, and also um, connecting with people that you trust and feel safe with to take part in those actions.
0: Yeah, those are some really important, um, tips, I guess, for people who are thinking of, um, participating in direct action or, or protests in the future. Um, you were saying before, you know, that here in this country, we are in some ways, you know, by and large, quite comfortable, um, and privileged. And it's funny to hear, you know, governments in this country talk about how lucky we are and, talk about democracy and the freedom to be able to, you know, take to the streets and things like that um, and compare this country to other places in the world, Um, it seems quite, you know, hypocritical or contradictory for those statements to be made whilst having, you know, our rights simultaneously limited and restricted by these laws.
4: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It really is. Um, and I think that, um, I mean, it's it's a, it's such an interesting area because also if you're looking at the ways in which um, legally, so under the Constitution, whilst we don't have a right to... Um, there's no written right to protest, there's an implied right. So under the Constitution, we have an implied right of political communication. And there's no such thing as, you know, the government's been talking a lot about illegal... Protests. There's no such thing as an illegal protest because protests are in and of themselves um, a way of speaking out about unjust laws. So, you know, we protest is an important part of civic participation. Um, but the ways in which then that connects or then governments make laws to um, criminalise protesters and protest actions and how that um, sort of connects to the criminal justice system I think is also a really interesting one and if you look at particularly um, going back to Violet Coco's matter the magistrate made really severe um, I guess comments when sentencing Violet saying that you know she wasn't a protester she was a criminal um, and also using really strict um, I guess when you're looking at sentencing kind of using deterrence and punishment which is the sort of the um, one of the underpinning principles of sentencing, using deterrence and punishment as a way to come down hard on protesters and call them criminals. So it's um, really interesting because on one hand we have under, you know, we have an implied constitutional right to speak out about the things that are harming ourselves and our communities, but on the other hand we have governments and a criminal justice system that are calling protesters criminals and saying they're taking part in illegal activity. So yeah, it's really worrying.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that you, you talk about that manipulation of language there, Katya, and I think that's a good reminder for people that when they are reading articles or reading statements issued about um about these activists and protesters to really challenge what's being written and what's being said about um these groups um and and I guess questioning the the carceral language that's being used to talk about people who are simply standing up for what they believe in and standing up to the government on, you know, climate inaction.
4: Yeah, um, I think that, yeah, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, we out of time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, no, no, any last thoughts um, there, Katia, about this issue?
4: Oh, yeah, I just think on that important part of language and something to finish up on was I think that the, um, obviously, because it happened in New South Wales, uh, the Attorney-General had been making comments about, and I know the Premier in New South Wales had been making comments as well, as well as Violet Action talking about, um, that they need to balance sort of a proportionality principle, so, you know, that actions shouldn't impede on the freedom and safety of other people. And I think that's an also a really important thing to question because they're sort of using human rights languages around proportionality to create um, false information around um, that any kind of protest action that you know blocks a lane for 25 minutes is impeding on other people's human rights to use that lane. And I think that um, when we're talking about proportionality to remember that actually that's about balancing people's actual human rights. So I would just say, you know, to finish on that, that protest is going to cause inconvenience and inconvenience is an important part of bringing to light the things that are inconvenience in people's lives, like climate change or for act for example. So um, yeah, just an important note around really uh, being critical of that language about when human rights are used against us um, as a way to explain our actions as criminal when really they're about um, calling for um, the safety and security of our community and our environment.
0: Yeah, thank you for that, Katia, and, and that's a really important note to end on. Um, thank you so much for joining us here on 3CR Breakfast this morning. It's been a pleasure speaking to you about this, and you've said a lot that's, yeah, cause for a reflection about the use of language, especially um, when talking about these uh, issues. So thanks again, Katia, for joining us this thank- morning.
4: Thank you so much, Fong, and thank you all the breakfasters. Love you all.
0: And that was Katia Lalo speaking to us there. Katia is a community lawyer and advocate and is also a member of Melbourne Activist Legal Support. We'll be back with a song right after this. You're listening to Summer Programming on 3CR. Here's another song for you. This is Stand Your Ground by Goanna, and it's from their album Spirit of Place, which celebrated its 40th anniversary this year in
1: 2022. When you wake up one morning And they're pounding at your door you your business in what you're
0: Goanna with their song Stand Your Ground. that's all we have time for on our show this morning. Thank you so much for joining us for our summer programming special. Just to recap what we listened to today, we started off by revisiting our interview with Emma Cutting from the Heart Gardening Project. Emma and I spoke about the importance of bees and the power of community gardens. Next up, we listened back to our discussion with Anna Langford, who spoke to us about the report called Climate Impacts at Work. That report was written by RMIT University and Friends of the Earth in collaboration with six Victorian unions. After that, we heard from Marawa Johnson from Youth Verdict. Marawa and I spoke about Waratah Coal, the coal project owned by Clive Palmer. And lastly, we heard from Katia Lalo, who is a community lawyer and advocate. Katia and I spoke about Violet Coco, who was arrested this year for her peaceful protest in Sydney. We also spoke about the tough new laws uh, in Victoria, New South Wales and Tasmania that are punishing and criminalising folks for their role in peaceful protests. Thank you so much again for joining us on 3CR Breakfast this morning. Stay tuned for another summer programming special next week at 7am.
5: 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care
0: and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au 3CR Breakfast
1: would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their
3: financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.